This is Amy Blair. And this is Paul Galliardi. And today, get ready to set sail with the annotated 80s as we discuss The Love Boat. Before we pull out of port, we'd like to welcome you back to the annotated 80s. And if this is your first cruise with us... Um, <clears throat> Paul, are you going to make nautical puns throughout this episode? Aye, aye. Fine, fine. <laughs> but if this is your first cruise with us as your cruise director, I'd like to give you a little bit about what we are doing here. Uh, Paul and I both grew up consuming a lot of popular media in the 1980s, but as kids and young teens, we didn't totally get all of the messages and references and the things we were watching. Um, we may not have even realized they were there. And as we'll say today, we may not have even been appropriately watching any of them. Um, but now as people who know a little bit more about history, we know a little more about cultural history and we do this professionally. Uh, we are looking back at this stuff through a different lens. So this podcast is going to be about digging into some of the things we missed the first time around when we saw these movies and TV shows. And yet we're going to try to retain a lot of the reactions we initially had the first time around. Kind of like being a kid at the grown-up table while your older cousin translates the conversation for you. Episode one and two. Uh, we focused on two standalone films, The Outsiders and Die Hard. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, please go back and listen to them. Uh, so episode three is a little different because we're looking at a nine season television show. Uh, we're not going to be, we're going to be kind of like briefly detailing four episodes. We watched at various points of the show's history and then annotate some big takeaways from us about those episodes because we didn't want a three-hour episode on the love boat. A three-hour tour, as it were. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we also didn't want to spend three months doing a completist watching of the entire... <laughs> Although we did... Season seven of the love boat is very lightly detailed on Wikipedia. So I suggested to Paul that we go back through and fill that in. And um, It was a weren't... hard... No, it was a hard... <laughs> You had very little interest in that project. I, I weighed it for um, about 30 seconds and said, no. That's yeah, not. that was a really quick reply from Paul. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, uh, so last episode, we ended pondering the question, why did the adults let us watch this thing? So what are your memories of watching The Love Boat, Amy? Okay, well, so interestingly enough, I thought for a long time that I had a false memory of watching The Love Boat because my memory of watching The Love Boat was that I watched it with my parents. We watched it religiously every week when it came out um, together as a family um, and that we immediately had to turn off the television when Fantasy Island came on <laughs> because for some reason, Fantasy Island was beyond the pale, whereas The Love Boat was okay family viewing um and then when we started doing research it turned out that like the first season of the love boat was shown at 10 o'clock and i knew that there was no way that my parents had me and i lived on the east coast so i knew that there was no way that my parents had me staying up until 11 watching the love boat so i had i had a crisis uh, identity crisis i felt like nothing i knew was true anymore <laughs> i had to talk you down a little bit actually yeah well paul talking. saved me because yeah. <laughs> because you found out yeah, the first season, it was shown at 10 o'clock on Saturday nights. It was a pretty successful show. And I think they canceled Star Starsky and Hutch. It was the last season, whatever. So they moved it to 9 o'clock on Saturday. And then Fantasy Island, which was supposed to be a little more risque version of The Love Boat, mm -hmm. in essence. Kind of the same. The same it has gist. fantasy in the title. Yeah, so, yeah. You, know, you can tell. Fantasy yeah. versus love. I mean, that's a lot. Love is palatable. Fantasies are not terrifying. For, for terrifying, right? Absolutely. Um, I don't. It's funny because I remember watching it. Just I remember seeing episodes. I don't remember a specific time watching episodes. I remember there was. I remember very distinctly as a four or five year old watching the episode that's like a flashback to World War II and the love boat is... Oh, yeah, that's that was Gopher is like the central character. Yeah. I think that was actually Fred Grandy's... When I've read interviews with him, he loved doing that episode. That was, his, of course, he was his star turn. So. Yeah. 
and then that's an episode where I think there's a plot where they, they're torpedoed by a Japanese submarine and it's a dud and that's like the big the big reveal at the end. Spoilers, sorry. Anyway, and I remember watching it in reruns, but always like my family never seemed to care that I was watching it because it seemed pretty innocuous. Mm-hmm. Oh, we totally watched it together. And when I told my parents that we were doing this episode, they're like, oh, remember when we watched it together? I mean, it was a sort of warm family, you know, memory that this was something that we did, you know, the three of us. So, yeah. So maybe like one thing we can say about the love boat is its place in television in the 1970s and 80s and this idea of monoculture, mm-hmm. which when we talk about network television, that's often a literary cultural studies term applied. Um, but this idea that everyone watched everything together, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have three networks, there's not like everyone's watching, a, not everyone, but a lot of people are watching love boat on Saturday nights. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're watching the same shows back to back to back and it's mostly family viewing for the Mm -hmm. most part Mm -hmm. and then the discourse of people like the water cooler shows right Mm -hmm. everyone watched mash everyone watched um you know uh, what's the show with archie bunker i can't think of the name oh all in the family all in the family absolutely but i think we're in a very different space culturally right now where tv networks have a third of their viewers they did in the 1970s Mm-hmm. Uh, culture is pretty broken up in terms of people's entry points to what they're discovering on the internet. Um, you were telling me an interesting story about something you discovered. Oh yeah, this all of week. the different screens, right? I mean, so another thing is, for the most part, right? A lot of people had one television, right? right. You didn't have a television in every bedroom. You didn't have a laptop computer that you can stream everything off of. You didn't have phones. I mean, you can be watching three things at once in one room anymore which actually finding out now some of the things that my teenage kids know (laughs) that I had no idea they knew um, which is actually also kind of topically adjacent to the love boat show which is that um, apparently now there's very big uh, tiktok sea shanty tiktok um, where people are singing, <laughs> filming themselves singing sea shanties. I was driving my 16-year-old somewhere the other day and she was like, Mom, I want to listen to sea shanties. I thought, you do? Like actual sea shanties? And she pulled up some sea shanties and I had no idea why until somebody tweeted about it this morning. I said, ha, <laughs> now I get it. And right after we finished t- taping this, Paul and I are both going to go immediately to TikTok and watch all of the sea shanties and wish we had used some of them for our musical introduction to this show. Uh, right. Next time, next time. Next, next time. But this is definitely not monoculture anymore. No, right. no, no. If you've never seen The Love Boat, uh, how would you describe The Love Boat, Amy? I mean, give me a, a, a two-minute summary of what The Love Boat is. Oh, well, I'm so good at the two-minute summaries, but I will, I'm timing I will, you. I'm timing oh, okay. you. Oh, no. Okay. Yep, well, I'll yep. do my best. So um, run the power play. Come on. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, it's an anthology television show. Uh, there's no continuity between one episode and the next, except for the fact that you have all of the same uh, members of the crew on board. And in each show, uh, there are three plots that run simultaneously. In the case of The Love Boat, all of them are titled differently and they're all written by different writers. There is sometimes overlap between the narratives, but not always. Um, At least initially in the first few seasons of the show, you roughly break these down as uh, three romantic pairing narratives, one between older passengers, right? Which they referred to as the warmly on the set, right? So these are geriatric. Yeah, I I found that in one of the books I was reading. Um, These are usually geriatric pairings. You have a middle-aged couple or couples that give you a comic relief sort of storyline. And then you have a story of young love. And sometimes this goes as young as like 10 and 12 year olds. Um, And now as we continue um, late into later seasons, that age breakdown doesn't necessarily maintain. But it's interesting in terms of monoculture to think that like initially they try to do this to kind of catch everybody in a household, right? Right. Generations of household can identify. And I definitely remember as a kid, like totally identifying with the young teenage kid 
epi- you know scenes right i'm like oh yeah i'm you know scott bayo i'm all about that romantic pairing um so i actually ended up watching um one show that paul didn't watch which is the third episode of season one very closely tracks with this it is a christy mcnichol scott bayo love pairing there's the middle-aged comedic effect which is two couples that the man from one couple and the woman from another couple had been married had had a, a nasty divorce the woman ends up marrying their marriage counselor and um, the man is having another affair and they meet up on the love boat and shenanigans ensue. Those couples were peopled by uh, Mr. Brady, as in the Brady Bunch, um, by oh, Hot yeah. Lehan from MASH. Um, and then, then the third, the older plot line in this particular episode also then becomes the crew member plot line. So in one of these three plot lines, usually a crew member is involved somehow in a romantic pairing or they know some of the people that are involved in it. And in this case, there's a younger gentleman who is um, overseeing a whole group from uh, a nursing home who've come on board the ship. And they're on the ship and they're trying to have a lot of fun and they keep pulling him away from the relationship he's trying to start with Julie. So and that one ends up being very, very poignant at the end, because at the end, they confess to them. They say, you know, we know that we interrupted all of your um, attempts to have a relationship, but we only get out once a year and we don't have very much time. And we know that you all have a lot of time. to get together. Oh, it's yeah, it's really intense <laughs> um, to say. I'm very like, sad that you didn't watch this, Paul. That's an, O'Neil, that's an O'Neill play. In essence. It, it is actually. It's very, very poignant. And that kind of thing, actually, as we'll talk about later, does not happen in, <laughs> in the later in the later seasons of The Love Boat. I have to say, well, we'll talk about this later, but the first two seasons were really quite quality. And then something, you know, once it starts taking off in terms of ratings, not so great. Um, Fred Grandy, who played Gopher on the ship, called the show benevolent voyeurism. Um, and like me as a kid, I can just sort of sit and twiddle my thumbs until Christy McNichol gets back on screen and I have somebody that I can identify with absolutely Absolutely. it was i mean and it was such an icon i mean it is now still right you can still go Mm -hmm. places and hear the love boat theme being played over the music but it was huge at the time aaron spelling who was the producer of the show um had a huge amount of pull um he was able to get approval from the network for destination episodes in places like alaska greece and turkey the mediterranean And they even had one three-episode arc in China, which is all to say, then, that uh, The Love Boat is very campy and cheesy, and Paul and I are very clearly going to be enjoying this as we continue on our time here with you today. (laughs) But there's also a bad side uh, to a lot of it, not just to the way that uh, crew members and um, actors are being treated on board the boat but also to the culture that it holds a mirror up to maybe it's helpful to think of a sort of short history of the cruise industry mm-hmm. so in marketing for cruise ships you go online they're often a lot of companies will try to promote connections to the famous ocean liners of the 20th century the titanic uh, the queen mary etc because you know nothing says have fun on a ship like the titanic <laughs> well, if you're thinking name a famous boat you know you got the need of the pin to the santa maria the titanic there's you're not there's not much that many people will, will well one of the problems with famous boats is they're usually famous for you know sinking so true, that's true. yeah <laughs> um so anyway but th- paul, paul and i do not go on cruises so. oh no. no 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 i have this uh, as a, as a kid, they discovered the Titanic in like 1985. And uh-huh, so I went right. on like this deep dive of, so to speak, so to speak of <laughs> shipwreck history. Uh-huh. And so at that point, 10 year old me is like, there's no way in hell I'm going to get <laughs> on one of these things. Either I'm going to hit an iceberg or be attacked by sharks, you know, fighting for my torpedoed, life. Torpedoed. Yeah. Yeah. Torpedoed. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, yes. so the history of the cruise industry. <laughs> the cruise industry. Let me rein it in. So the cruise industry in the ocean 
liner industry are two separate things. So the ocean liners, uh, like the Titanic, like the Britannic, um, uh, the Lusitania, all ones that sunk. <laughs> they were primarily existed to take immigrants from Europe to the New World. Even though we have this image of the Titanic as like this luxurious ocean liner, most of the passengers were in really horrible conditions in steerage passing third third class uh, uh, accommodations. That's where these ocean liner companies made their money. Was not necessarily taking the Astors on a on a vacation. It was people from Central Europe and Southern Europe immigrating to North and South America. After World War One, uh, that basically dies because the United States, for instance, imposes really harsh uh, anti-immigration policies. Um, and these these companies, with the exception of a few, basically sink. Um, <laughs> Block <laughs> that, that metaphor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you do have, for a time, you will see in, in the 1920s and 1930s, the rise of passion, passenger cruise ships to, to Europe, mm -hmm. but they're incredibly expensive. And very, very soon they get undermined by air travel. Mm -hmm. What does start to happen in the 20s is you have prohibition in the United States oh. and companies start to market these pleasure cruises where you can go out to the international waters and start drinking your Canadian club and your champagne. <laughs> and there'll, nice. be a lot of, there'll be a lot of cruises from like New York to Halifax mm -hmm. uh, to get the booze <laughs> and then come back and then people get transported back to New York. Yeah. I did not know this. This yeah. Is, yeah. makes perfect sense to me. After World War II, because the cruise industry, the, the ocean liner industry basically is dead after the 1940s because you mm -hmm. start to see air, air travel. Mm -hmm. Uh, there are a bunch of entrepreneurs in Miami. Miami is a boom town in World War II. Mm -hmm. And they start to realize they can make a good amount of money uh, having cruise ships travel the Caribbean fairly, fairly economically. Mm -hmm. They buy ships and sh ships are produced from European countries via uh, governmental support of the, the, the cruise industry. Oh, yeah. And they're, they're transported to uh, Miami. Mm -hmm. Uh, they can also hire a lot of very cheap workers mm. uh, from Caribbean nations, African nations, mm. South American countries that are working incredibly cheap wages. And in essence, because they are registered in different countries, they don't have to apply the same labor uh, protections that you would in the United States. Got it. Also, air conditioning is really important here because air conditioning Miami before 1945 is a place you don't want to be from March to September. Truth. Yes. Truth. And <laughs> very, very warm in Miami. Yes. But when air conditioning starts to be implemented, they can maintain air conditioned cabins on these ships and you're able to very comfortably go from Bermuda to Miami to various ports of call. And of course, has a huge impact environmentally because it makes starts makes the South more inhabitable, and mm -hmm. you know that leads to a whole other you know, number of problems from you know like an environmental perspective. Hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the cruise industry basically starts after this time uh, in in nineteen forties through all these all these different inventions and uh, you know, views of how one can live your life uh, or have a life of leisure. Mm -hmm. I, I guess all these different things kind of coalesce all together. Mm -hmm. And then you have a cruise industry. Hmm. Um, and life on the boats was pretty bad. <laughs> for the yeah. people who are working there as opposed yeah. to, yeah, for the passengers. Um, to say the cruise industry is more or less moribund by the 1970s, but enter then a book, <laughs> a book called Love Boats uh, by a woman named <laughs> Geraldine Saunders. Um, and this was last last time I read the book mm -hmm, that, yes. that Die Hard was based on. <laughs> Amy read this book. Yes. In, this is your this is your dedication to the podcast. This was my dedication. Although I have to say, I um, I came around to a profound appreciation for this book. Actually, I'll, I'll put the cover up on on the Instagram because it is really quite something. This cover of, of Geraldine and her heyday. Geraldine Saunders, uh, 
uh, publishes this book in 1974. This is a memoir of her time working as a cruise director, um, that she was probably the first female cruise director huh. on, in the cruise industry. So she was really quite a, a groundbreaker. She kind of got the job accidentally. She was a single mom and um, she answered an ad and she faked her way through the interview. She told them that she knew Spanish and Italian. (laughs) Um, And the way she tells it, she's just kind of like, I sort of, you know, up for anything. Sure, whatever, I can do this. And ended up becoming a cruise director and was very, very successful and um, worked in a number of different cruise lines and kept writing letters home to her mom saying, I'm going to write a book about this one day. And when she does, it becomes this huge kind of scandalous success because she's making a couple of claims about things that happen on cruises, right? For one thing, when people go on cruises, apparently they become sex crazed, right? This is one of the premises of the book. Sex crazed. (laughs) Yes, is that everybody comes on board a, a cruise ship and once you're 12 miles out, you know, everything goes, right? So people are hooking up right and left. Um, The alcohol is flowing like water and, you know, just, you know, all social convention goes out the window, right? And so she tells all of these amazing stories uh, about all sorts of terrible behaviors, about all sorts of, you know, shenanigans with people sort of, you know, switching cabins all the time about uh, women who are desperately trying to bed captains and who successfully do so. So there's a lot of, you know, between passengers and crew members and things like that. It's just basically a giant floating orgy in the way she describes it in a lot of ways. Um, There are other bits though. And and these are the bits of the book that whenever you read somebody talking about the Love Boats book inspires the love boat series this is what everybody talks about very famous um story about how the book gets apparently terrible reviews which immediately appeal to the guy who uh, it's not it's not Aaron Spelling right it's Carver I can't remember Carver I believe Carver yeah yeah yeah. um and he says yeah we got it we got to option this thing immediately (laughs) it's got a terrible book review so we're gonna option it um, but some of the other things that she talks about that, that don't really get a lot of mention um, in those stories are the fact that she's actually in a lot of personal peril herself, because if this is a floating orgy, a lot of people are trying to sexually assault her, right? Yeah. So she tells a lot of stories about having to hide out in her cabin. Um, she's escaping both passengers and her fellow crew members, right? Because she's one of the only women on board the ship. And we see this with Julie. Right, she's the only female crew member, and well, I guess there's uh, the captain's daughter, Vicky. So that yeah, yeah. she, yeah, she pops in and out. Right. Um, the other thing that she really does talk an awful lot about is about how a lot of these ships are breaking down all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this whole series of chapters where you know they're going through Alaska and mussels get on board the plumbing of the ship, and so toilets don't work for four days, or they're running aground and you know, passengers are being terribly inconvenienced. Uh, the electric is going out. You know, there, there are all these boats that are just really in terrible condition. And her job as cruise director is to make everybody happy through all this, right? So she talks about how she, you know, basically, <laughs> you know, grabs her tambourine and decides to host a dance party, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, have everybody drink an awful lot of champagne and yeah. you know, pretend like they're having fun. And she said, you know, even, even you know, everybody always thanked her afterward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for the great time they had, even though the ship was breaking down all the time. And it, of course, makes me think immediately of, um, you know, before COVID, right, you always hear about, this is one of the reasons I've never gone on a cruise. You always hear about people who have horrible GI uh, outbreaks. Norovirus. Norovirus, and, yeah. right. Norovirus. Of course, we have the, the floating COVID ships um, with passengers who, you know, are all sitting ducks, right? Right. Um, and uh, then even after the passengers leave, we've had the terrible, terrible stories of crew members who have been stuck on these ships um, for, you know, nearly a year. Um, just as Paul and I were preparing this episode, actually, there was an article um, came out December 30th, 2020 um, in Bloomberg Business called The Cruise Ship Suicides. Um, and uh, Paul and I are saying this is the segment of our episode where we call it, what was it, bum out our listeners? Or something? Yeah, depress our listeners. Press our listeners segment. Um, 
which if you haven't found this article, I will figure out a way to link it from our Instagram. Um, it focuses on young international crews, many of whom are stuck on these ships uh, still <laughs> and yeah. have been in terrible, terrible conditions. They've had difficulty getting home during the pandemic. It's very hard for them to get food. The windows for them to go eat at the buffets are very narrow. It's much easier for them to get access to a lot of alcohol. Um, yeah. And there's been um, quite an epidemic of suicide actually on the ships. So, and then the repatriation of their remains is lagging. I mean, it's just absolutely terrible. And, it, and Amy sent this to me. Uh, it, was, it was the hardest thing I, I think I read last year. It's absolutely heartbreaking yeah. and worth looking at. And worth noting too, that the book that starts the love boat, the book that starts it all is quite explicit. Um, about how much life on board can be unpleasant, cramped. Because you mentioned earlier that in the 70s, uh -huh. the, the cruise ship industry is, was kind of flatlining a little bit economically. Right. And, one, and everything I've read about the cruise, the history of the cruise industry is there's mm -hmm. this like, magic TV series that helps mm -hmm. re reinvigorate um, uh, the industry itself. Uh, and so, yeah, like the love boat becomes this really important marker or important tool to giving to people this fantasy mm -hmm. of what a cruise is. Now, again, neither one of us has been on a cruise <laughs> and that's not happening anytime soon. No. But it, the love boat basically functions as free advertising to these American cruise companies on both the West Coast and East Coast. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, they sell to audiences this idea of as we, a couple of things we've talked about, like you can come to love and save your marriage, right? You can come find new love. You can come get involved in some hijinks. Yes. And becomes really, really important kind of selling this idea of a cruise as a viable vacation option for, especially the middle class in, in the, in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, this also coincides with the rise of the uh, tourist uh, tour agency, mm -hmm. uh, really marketing toward, uh, mm -hmm. especially people in their, in, in their 50s and the 1970s and 1980s that have disposable income, mm -hmm. you know, all inclusive. Um, we'll take uh, care of everything for you. You don't have to plan it. You don't yeah. have to read about it. You don't have to know anything about any no. of these places you're going. And, and that's another thing that Geraldine talks about, right? That her job was to let everybody know what all these ports of call were like, right? Mm -hmm. um, she's a tour guide as well. There's an, an upward mobility dream to this, sure. right? You can sure. be on these cruise ships. You can buy a fancy dress and pretend like you're an aristocrat. Um, I'm going to bring in a little bit of cultural theory here. Um, there's a guy <laughs> named Mikhail Bakhtin who talks about the idea of the carnivalesque, right? Right. Um, that there is a suspension of all the normal rules of society and um, in, in, a, in a carnival situation, um, a lot of times he specifically talks about masks and masking, but that, um, you know, you, you can have a party that, you know, a party or a situation where um, everything is overturned and different pairings, you know, it becomes a sort of cultural leveling experience and that it's cathartic also for society. And a lot of what goes on in the, the love boat, right? And some of these episodes does, to my mind at least, uh, really replicate the Bakhtinian carnivalesque. Um, and there's a, a huge appeal to that, you know, go away and you can come back transformed, so. Or you can go away and be somebody that you're not, right? Mm -hmm. That you can, right. and, I, and I think one of the themes of the love boat too, or not what I, I think one of the recurring motifs would be somebody not someone not someone who is not who they claim to be right and right. there's a kind of liberatory um uh element to that to be sure Absolutely. so do you think we should start talking about the episodes i think we, we should start yes sure. we did watch some of the episodes <laughs> of the show. <laughs> we did actually watch the show we, in we preparation <laughs> Um, so which one do you want to talk about first? I mean, I've I already talked a little bit about the one that was like the really early episode that kind of fits the template, yeah. right? Or the initial template. Yeah. I think, I think we should talk about season three's episode 12 entitled okay. the brotherhood of the sea slash baby cakes slash daddy's pride. 
Mm-hmm. Um, this was the first one we watched. Uh, mm-hmm. This is from this is from 1980, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what one thing that was interesting to me again, I haven't watched these shows in years. Mm-hmm. So, one thing I, I what really surprised me about watching this episode was how representative this episode was. What was called jiggle television. Mm-hmm. which is a pejorative term um the the head of nbc called this uh, gave this term to what he, what he saw with fred silverman's running of abc at the time so abc in the 70s had a lot of shows where there were female main characters but they were almost always scantily clad um uh, wonder woman charlie's angels uh, love boat um that the female body was front and center uh in terms of how the actors were portrayed on on screen mm-hmm. um and so a lot of the the love boat episode we watched features a lot of bodies both ma- male and female mm-hmm. ne- wearing next to nothing like centered in the shot <laughs> crotch shots crotch shots crotch yeah. shots and like women leaning against the edge of a pool guys mm-hmm. walking around speedos You'll yeah. have two characters talking to each other, and then you see a speedo-clad butt walking right, <laughs> just right, right through the screen. Absolutely, and this is this is actually a seven, 1979. I, I, it's, seventy-nine. Okay, it was seventy-nine. But yeah. Okay. But anyway, it, it's really it's really shocking to me. It was it was so distracting, <laughs> and actually, I will put this on Twitter. I took a screenshot of this one background character I was obsessed with. <laughs> It was a guy just kind of like an extra wandering into a shot in his speedo. It has no bearing on the narrative whatsoever. Nope. It was just so distracting to me. I, I, I loved it. It was fantastic. <laughs> Paul sent me this screenshot. He's like, what is up with this guy? Uh, like, we're several, we're several, he circled it. Like we're several scenes past this now, Paul. You, you don't know what's happening with the other narratives. I, I don't remember. I don't remember this story at all. Um, so I was just so obsessed with uh that that background character this is what yes. i do by the way i am obsessed with background characters i they, they will distract me so much from the story and this is well and so you will you will hear a lot from paul about background characters <laughs> in, in forthcoming episodes um this, yeah, this they, is my promise to everyone yes. <laughs> well and I, I was really interested in this episode because, well, it, first of all, it was the one, it was one of the few full episodes that we found on YouTube for free. Right. Um, we then ended up buying a CBS all, CBS all access pass so that we could see more of these. We um, can write that off. I think, can we do that? I, I think, I think we can. I well, when we get the Patreon, we'll, that's true. Uh, that's that's true. One of the storylines that I was fascinated by, uh, was called daddy's pride and it was a gymnastics storyline featuring Nancy McKeon, who was in the Facts of Life um, as Joe. But in this, uh, she plays a girl who is being sort of forced into uh, being a gymnastics star by her dad. And then a young teenage boy who is on the ship by himself which that never really gets interrogated at all like there's a little bit of a there's a little bit of a your parents just let you go on a cruise by yourself and he's like yeah that's my dad but it, it's not like you know a problem really this is 79 it's, it's kids. totally 79 <laughs> um but he ends up telling home truths to Nancy McKeon's dad and uh he ends up saying hey you know come hang out with us later and of course the two of them get together mm-hmm. um there's also uh the baby cakes story line features J.J. Walker, Damon Wilson, and Thelma Hopkins um who are three big stars from black sitcoms uh running at the time from uh Sanford and Son and Good time. Good time. Walker was on Good Times. Yep. Wilson was on Sanford and Son. Thelma Hopkins would be on. She was actually in Tony Orlando and Dawn, I think. And then, oh. um, and then she would go on to uh, uh, not Facts of Life. That theme song's now in my head. And I'm, I'm sorry. I'm yeah, very angry with you. I'm, yeah, uh, <laughs> Family Matters. Give me a uh, give me a break, and then oh, and give then, me a break. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but 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 three actors that were on black sitcoms that were fairly realistic, and then they're in the space of this this fantasy world. Mm-hmm. Um, 
their storyline is really it's very emblematic of a lot of these plot lines where it's this farcical Damon Wilson is dating Thelma Hopkins and he also has his eye on someone else Mm -hmm. uh, another another black um, woman who has a voice that sounds like a 1930s chorus girl uh, for no reason whatsoever and then J.J. Walker and Thelma Hopkins end up coupling together Mm -hmm. Um, they are the four black people on the boat yeah right so clearly they have no other romantic options either so no no they must be by themselves right right exactly but yeah it's anything else that struck you about about this episode well the other thing in this episode is that there is a cast a crew member storyline which is the brotherhood of the sea storyline which uh the idea of this is that julie is going to have a birthday and mm-hmm. so all of the guys have to make a birthday party for her without her knowing about it. Oh, and, and, and there's a travel agent who's on board who's trying to get with Julie. There's usually like some random guy comes on board and tries to get with Julie. Um, and, and that gets thwarted somehow, right? Because Julie right. is too busy doing her cruise director job. Um, and in this case, uh, the guys are all trying to, this is Doc and Gopher and Isaac. Um, have been told by the captain that they need to uh, throw a birthday party for Julie. And so they try to distract her from what they're doing by saying that they are members of a fraternity mm-hmm. called the Brotherhood of the Sea. And then she decides that she's going to be feminist, right? And she's going to listen to Gloria Steinem and she's going to assert herself <laughs> as a woman. She's like, I've read Gloria Steinem. And so she's going to break into the Brotherhood of the Sea fraternity. And so that is all getting played for laughs, right? The idea that Julie wants to become the sort of equal equal member of a you know crew club with all the guys right which casts my mind back to Geraldine's stories of how she was very much marginalized Mm -hmm. but it's totally played for jokes right and the idea of you know feminism is being played for jokes here like ha 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 she read Gloria's Dynamite there's a laugh track right (laughs) right Right. (laughs) so oh they're very into second wave feminism on the on the love boat so exactly that's it. I'm out. It's <laughs> it for me. So another episode we watched was actually the first episode of season four, which was the season where the show really started peaking in terms of its um, uh, ratings. Right. I mean, I think it's the 1980 to 81 season. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And this was uh, the first episode of season four, and it featured. A young, a young actor named Tom Hanks. Yes. Uh, and this is one of Tom Hanks's first television appearances. This is around, and I couldn't find definitive information. This is around the time he will start to appear in the sitcom uh, Bosom Buddies. Um, Tom Hanks. So good. And, it's so good. So good. So good. <laughs> um, it's, it, it would not work today, like many no, sitcoms from the 1980s, but it's Tom Hanks. Um, and what I think is interesting, and, and I, as we were watching this, I was, I was, you know, texting Amy, like very excited that Tom Hanks was, <laughs> was on the show. Um, a lot of acting in, in television time, right, to kind of simplify it a little bit, right? Actors would have to kind of play to the camera, but not play to the camera because mm-hmm. you had to like balance close-ups with like how your body moved. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that's been my observation. I could be wrong. Some much better actor than me could probably say, no, that's not accurate. <laughs> <laughs> but what was interesting, what got me really excited was Tom Hanks was just so good with how he used his face. Like he was looking away from the camera mm-hmm. at various moments. He was kind of using his body really interestingly. Um, but we also came to this consensus that when Tom Hanks wasn't <laughs> on screen, we were very upset. Like there needs to be more Tom Hanks. <laughs> and there wasn't nearly enough Tom Hanks because he was on there as sort of an accessory to what turned into basically a cast member story, which was, yes. yeah, the, the storyline that he was part of was that he was, he was Gopher's old fraternity brother, right? And mm-hmm. he came on board and, and Gopher's like, oh my God, this guy, he's such a womanizer. He drives me completely crazy. Julie, pretend like we're together. Right. He's like, yeah, Tom, yeah this, this Tom Hanks's character always got the girl and he, and he always felt Gopher always felt, you know, second rate and emasculated by him. So Julie plays along is like, OK, fine. And so then she and Gopher end up pretending like they're together 
and then they share a kiss where they think maybe they are together but she's kind of always having to run away from tom hanks's character um and it's just very frustrating because it's not really about tom hanks right it's about gopher and julie yeah and it's an early version of the will they won't they Mm -hmm. which um we'll keep talking about um especially in our next episode um and of course spoiler alert they they don't (laughs) <laughs> right they can't um after one magical kiss like the next night they try to replicate it and they're like yeah it's no, not happening. No, no, nothing there no. um but there's yes. there's a scene that i i'm there's a scene where tom hanks is laying by the pool he's surrounded by four or five women yes um which doesn't make any sense in the context i mean it makes sense that he's a womanizer yeah. but it doesn't make sense like watching that i would i was asking myself well how did he meet those women like are they all like cool with this arrangement how does this work yeah, exactly it's just it's just the force of his animal magnetism is supposed to be really- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're just all drawn directly to um, him it's because of thanks. his it's because of his excellent acting they're all like hey he's the one guy on this he's the one actor <laughs> this kid's going places we better latch on to him well so paul and i decided actually that this is going to be a recurring bit um, because we decided that Tom Hanks is the Alan Rickman of the love book. <laughs> we so, said, yeah. Because we had the same reaction. Like when Alan Rickman wasn't on screen in Die Hard, we're like, yes. mm. eh. so we are announcing the Alan Rickman Memorial Trophy given to the actor who <laughs> wants to see in every scene, but we are depressed when they're not on screen. So that's right. That's right. Annual first episode or thir- third episode presentation trophy to Tom Hanks. To Tom Hanks is the Alan Rickman of the love boat. Yeah. Absolutely. You have your Oscars, Tom, but now you got, <laughs> you got this. You've got so, <laughs> trophy case is complete. <laughs> we, we've got to come up with the initial to add to EGOT, right? <laughs> oh, EGOT. <Tom. laughs> EGOT. That's good. I like that for annotated 80s award yes yes all right so anyway (laughs) still thinking on that one um so the so the next episode we have on our manifest for this episode oh lord uh it's they're not gonna get better uh (laughs) so the next episode we watched uh was an episode that was named one of the best 100 tv episodes of all time in 1997 uh season or excuse me episode three from season nine hidden treasure picture from the past aces salary featuring <clears throat> this is a this is a all-star team of actors yes andy griffith cloris leachman tom bosley marion ross milton Burrow, and andy warhol you heard that right you heard that right <laughs> this is not us sleep deprived this is <laughs> an actual episode um thoughts amy well, first of all, when we saw that lineup and we saw that this was named as one of the best 100 TV episodes of all time, we mm-hmm. thought, you know, easy, right? We're looking at hundreds of episodes. Which one do we choose? Clearly, we choose this one and also Andy Warhol. Right. But when we started watching it, it was just dreadful. It, it was... It, it was awful. It, it was... was yeah. <laughs> It was it was a bad episode. First of all, it's it is in season nine, which is the mm-hmm. penultimate season of the show. Um, at this point, the series was really um, going off the rails. You mean went off course? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a bit of stunt casting, of course, here. Sure. Um, although apparently Warhol himself really lobbied to get on um, on the ship. Really, really wanted it. Huh. So, um, but uh, this was also um, an example of an episode that probably would have aired during Sweeps Weeks. Right. Right. So, um, Paul, explain a little bit about Sweeps Week. So, Sweeps were, and they still, they still exist, but they don't have as much weight uh, as they did in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Sweeps were, I think, on average, like four weeks during the year. Usually, as I think, used to be November and February, and then they, they switched I think there are four sweeps weeks now. Um, but those were the weeks that television networks would set the prices for advertising for both the national network and their local affiliates. Mm-hmm. 
So what they would try to do based on the Nielsen ratings, which that's not a whole other story for, for another, another time. Um, but what they would often do, these networks would often do during sweeps weeks was they would have big episodes. They could market um, well in advance. Uh, they would be in competition with your other network. So you might have, let's say on a Friday night or a Thursday night, you might have a big event on the Cosby show. Mm -hmm. contrasted what was happening on CBS versus something on ABC and trying to pull in as many viewers as possible. What I never understood about Sweeps Weeks was advertisers should know that like the numbers would be inflated. And, um, <laughs> and I've never, I haven't really found any good explanation <laughs> as to why. But so what, often what TV shows would do, they would have these big events like marriages were mm -hmm. ratings gold. Uh, people having babies uh, mm -hmm. were big draws, um, special episodes and loading them with guest stars. So the Love Boat had a lot of two-part episodes. Mm -hmm. I found some conflict conflicting information as to whether they would show them on consecutive weeks or back-to-back -back, mm -hmm. uh, in like mm -hmm. special yeah, one night, blocks. Yeah, two-hour block, yeah. Um, but a lot of these like special episodes where they go to Greece or Turkey or China will be sweeps weeks. Mm -hmm. This one, because it's loaded with Andy Griffith, who, mm -hmm. if you've never seen Andy Griffith, best known for uh, the Andy Griffith show and Matlock, although mm -hmm. it comes later, Cloris Leachman, uh, um, Ross and Bosley were on Happy Days. Milton right. Burrell. Playing, playing a married couple differently. Yes. Right? Yeah. Milton Burrow playing Milton Burrow was on the show like four times each time mm -hmm. playing a different character and that was another thing with a love boat in 80s television they would bring back oftentimes shows would bring back guest stars yeah they'd be playing different roles right um and that was very distracting to me because I you know, like, <laughs> you know um it's a very neutered Milton Burrow because mm -hmm. he's like his his job is he's a um uh, he's the investigator he's the um yes. accountant right forensic accountant and he's For coming in um, that's it's it's the pay storyline, right? Is ostensibly about how the new photographer on board, who is played by sitcom killer Tim um, but he he is very upset that he does not get paid as much as the older crew members. Um, mm -hmm. And you think that this is going to be a moment for like you know equality and pay and solidarity in the working class and unionization but no it actually no, no, no. it's it, it, it's a plot that goes nowhere it essence. goes well as as do all of the plots in this particular True. episode because True. they are particularly lame and then andy warhol's mm -hmm. uh, so marion ross and tom bosley they're a married couple mm -hmm. who lost the 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 spark in their in yes. their marriage and they're trying to rekindle it and Marion Ross turns out was in one of Andy Warhol's films in the 1960s. Yes, she was a member of the factory, apparently. Yes, yeah. And Andy Warhol recognizes her and, and I think tries to convince her to go back to. Am I, or I'm, no, I'm what's going to. The whole episodes. reason for Andy Warhol being on board is that he is going to paint a portrait of somebody on board. Right, right. So he's got right. his photographer wandering around taking pictures of people and. The, picture that he thinks is the most stunning is the one that he's going to paint the portrait of this person. right I mean, it, it's just completely lame <laughs> yeah and there's a musical number for no oh apparent my reason. god well no this became a, this was the thing that they actually sort of threw in in the last couple of seasons to try to attract people to watch the love boat mermaids mermaids which is a <laughs> dance pause crew. pause this and google love boat mermaids and <laughs> And you will actually probably show up with the scene that was in this particular episode, which is the mermaid singing and dancing to I'm So Excited by the Pointer Sisters. Yeah. Yeah. And, I got nothing. Yeah. Paul, Paul is like, what? In, in what world is this attractive or interesting to anyone? <laughs> like, it's not even, it's not camp. No. It's not, I mean, it's, it's really, really bad NFL dance team behavior. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a good, that's a good comparison. I don't understand it. No. I don't. And, and there's some controversy about this list. Like a lot of these lists mm -hmm. that come out, um, we, we said in the previous episode about the idea of clickbait uh, and listicles. Mm -hmm. um, so TV Guide comes out with this list in 1997. And if you research it, there are a lot of op-eds from TV critics panning this list because in part, 
it was work TV guy did it with conjunction with Nick at night. And so a lot of the TV episodes tend tended to be available on Nick at night. Um, but I looked at the list and uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't like half of the, the episodes. I would say there's a better episode of that series. Um, it was, it's a very weird list. That's all. Hmm. Well, we were we were led astray by the list, and we watched this. And of any Love Boat episode, we would recommend you skip this one because yes. it was it was terrible. I, I, mm. I believe that actually, I was just looking at our notes, and um, Paul's final word on this was that was really fucking lame. <laughs> so. Paul had, had it. Paul had had it by that point. Paul I, was pretty done. Yeah. And yet I managed to get him to watch one more episode. And aren't we glad we did, Paul? It was I, actually a two-part Sweeps Weeks episode. Season six uh, called Spoonmaker Diamond, Papa Doc, and Julie's Tycoon. Very briefly, there is an A-plot uh, with uh, Julie, she reconnects. So the episode is the 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 cat. The crew is going to Greece and Turkey. Yes, you know, this and- is one of their location, and and we haven't we hadn't yet looked at a location episode either. Mm-hmm. So this is one of their big exotic locale episodes. It's a two parter. It's for Sweet Sweets, yeah. right? So we're very excited about the production values and and interested in looking at how they're going to use all of the locations that they go to. And so. The episode is filmed primarily in, in Greece and Turkey. The one plot is Julie is trying to reconnect with a pen pal she had <clears throat> from Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this amazing scene where <laughs> she's in a ta- she's in, uh, she takes a taxi to somewhere in a, a Greek city. I forget which one. Yeah, I think she's literally sticking her head out the window <laughs> like a dog. <laughs> Uh, she go, she manages to run into her pen pal outside this office building. Yes. Played by Lorenzo Lamas. Oh, yes. Uh, he's like, but this Hulk is my... crest time, this is, this is my building. It turns out he is this Donald Trump millionaire. <laughs> they have this whirlwind romance and all these shots. And He and still this... has her picture in his wallet, which is not at all creepy. Right, yeah. right. That's... You know. <laughs> That's a whole ten-year-old her, ten-year-old Ten-year- her in yeah, his wallet. Yeah, Papa Doc is a kind of un- unimportant plot where uh, the Doc characters. I'm not even going to mention it. It's not worth going into. And then Spoonmaker Diamond is it is complicated plot with Harvey Corman um, and Jamie Farr from Mash. Mm-hmm. Jamie Farr is playing a a, a a a Turk a Turkish man working for Interpol. Yep. Um, who's trying to catch these jewel thieves? Uh, Harvey Corman <laughs> is uh, doing a, a terrible Texas accent, uh, which, as it turns out, is supposed to be terrible because yeah. he is the jewel thief. Yes, spoilers. He's, he's yeah. faking things. Yes. Um, but this this is a really ludicrous scene. So most of the sh- most of the most of the episode is shot on a a Greek cruise cruise ship. Mm-hmm. And then they're shot on location in Greece and Turkey. Mm-hmm. There are some shots that are done clearly in studio. Yep. Um, and there's this hilarious museum jewel jewel heist. Oh, at animation. Um, it's it looks like it was shot in the 1960s Batman series. It, it really does. Aesthetic. Like you're <laughs> waiting for the Riddler to come out, uh, and it's. Yeah, it's and it's, it's it, it takes a really long time too. It's like <laughs> it's, it's like ten <laughs> it's like ten minutes. They're really it's like a student doing a block quote. It's a page long in a paper, and you're like, okay, I know what you're doing here. It is it is it is excruciating. Um, <laughs> we we loved it and we hated it. Yes. Um, However, there is one part of this episode <laughs> that we have unadulterated love for. Yes. So, and this is not part of any one of those three plots. No. This is like an extra bonus fourth plot. Yeah. For this episode that doesn't seem yeah. to have a name, um, but it features dun, 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 Linda Evans. Linda Evans. Of Dynasty fame. Mm-hmm. She walks onto the boat and she is Crystal Carrington, right? She, she just... She's so good. <laughs> she so so there is a special look right to the costume and to all the characters on the love boat um 
but she walks in and she is her character from dynasty yeah clearly she is wearing the outfit right um all the other stars i mean there's an element to this when all the other stars come on screen too right you see um roger or or whatever his name is reed roger reed is Mm -hmm. it roger reed yeah who plays uh mike brady and you go oh that's the brady dad right and so you know that he's him and like we talked about with the star star image image right you you know he's playing himself and he's playing mike brady and he's playing this other character Mm -hmm. totally but when Linda Evans shows up, she is very clearly Crystal Carrington, right? Oh, yeah. uh, she's dressed exactly like her. And the first thing I said to Paul was, I wonder if it's the same costume designer. And as it turns out, it actually is. Nolan oh. Miller, who oh. became very famous for all of the costumes on Dynasty, was also simultaneously and the entire time doing all the costumes for The Love Boat. I right? did- Oh, really? Yes, huh. really. So they had the same costume designer working. This is Aaron Spelling, right? Was also mm-hmm. Dynasty. So yeah. it was the same yeah. team basically doing all of them. So it was very easy for him to completely import the Crystal Carrington look. And so this is a huge crossover moment, right? Even though she yeah. isn't Crystal Carrington on the boat, she is Crystal Carrington on she, the boat. Yeah, like if you took her scenes out of the love boat you would say this is a weird episode of dynasty where joan collins is not involved right and she's a model and she's doing a photo shoot in turkey right Right. because that is the scene those are the scenes that are the best (laughs) and paul is doing a little dance because they were so amazing you have all these other scenes with these other characters like Julie and Lorenzo Lamaze are having picnics mm-hmm. out in these ruins. And all of a sudden it cuts to Linda Evans literally emerging from behind a ruin with this soaring violin music. And, and she's like posing. Like it's like, <laughs> you know. She's doing a fashion shoot. She's doing a fashion shoot, but uh, I she's don't like have... a tropical bird, right? Yes. Like it emerge, she's a phoenix emerging from yes. the ruins. Yes. And this da 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 the music. And she's wearing all these flowing robes. And we tried so hard <laughs> to find these clips on YouTube. And I, and I think CBS has them copywritten and cut. Yes. I found one still that's just astonishing. And it will be on Instagram. But this was totally dialed up to 11. Oh, yeah. This thing. so over the top so campy classical goddess and it made the whole thing for us she was she was working it like there's working it and then there's working it w-e-r-k yes yes yes. this was work this was a cocaine binged kind of (laughs) (laughs) somebody just really went completely over the top with this and it was so fabulous i mean the love boat actually i found out a little bit that the love boat was actually very involved in the fashion industry i mean Ah. there's yeah um there's nolan miller but then there was also a very iconic two-parter in season four Mm -hmm. um where they had a whole bunch of fashion designers come onto the love boat as themselves And this episode, actually, of the series of episodes, Jeffrey Bean, Halston, Bob Mackey, and Gloria Vanderbilt come on. Mm -hmm. And this uh, two-part episode is actually credited with turning a lot of these designers into stars themselves, right? Not just their clothing, but the designers become stars in the way that, like, now we think of Michael Kors as a star, right? We know who he is because of Project Runway. Um, Michael Kors actually cites this episode as one of his very early inspirations he's like he was a four or five year old kid and he watched this and he said designers can be the center of things yeah this is a a article i read um talking about the importance of this episode in the new york times so you know fashion and the love boat i mean you don't really think of the love boat with fashion because it's a lot of times super super cheesy but there were these moments um and for sure for us this was a moment <laughs> this was a moment. So, if you watch no other love boat, you yeah, need to this, watch this two-parter season. What was season, it again? Season season six. Season six. six. Yeah. November sweeps. Sweeps. Yeah. And you know, just fast forward through everything else until you get to. Although you really kind of need to have the the build up where everything is kind of dull, and then suddenly yeah. Linda Evans is yeah. just showing up. Yeah. And That's we're going to turn this into we're going to turn this into an award uh, later on somehow the the yeah. Linda Evans Award for uh, 
but working, working at, but working yeah. at, yeah, yeah, yeah that works. <laughs> so to speak. So to speak. Uh, well, so that's our um, not quite three hour tour mm-hmm. of our experience watching the love boat um, and, and, and processing it and bringing it to you all. Cruise director and me. Gopher. And gopher. You, the yeah, purser. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> you thanks. can be gopher. <laughs> um, we have, oh no, you can be Isaac because you have the finger yeah, guns Isaac. going. There yes, you go. I got the finger guns. You're a bartender. Um, <laughs> he doesn't do anything. He doesn't <laughs> no, he it. brought drinks. He brought drinks okay. in the uh, uh, the third episode, the one that I watched. Um, he's okay. everybody. And he's actually yeah. mocking people for their bad drink selection. So there was that element of his character that I don't think I saw pulled out later on, which See, is if, disappointing. If I was a bartender, that would totally be my my persona. Just oh, absolutely you for your for your choices. Oh yeah, everybody buys a whiskey sour, <laughs> and he makes fun of them. We have grad reading. We do. Uh, if you this is your first time listening, we try mm-hmm. to end every episode with some recommendations mm-hmm. uh, for auxiliary reading uh, and watching. So mm-hmm. I have I have two short ones here. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is David Foster Wallace's essay, originally, <laughs> I love this. originally this print, originally printed Harper's as shipping out in 1996, and then most people know it as a, quote a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, mm-hmm. uh, in which. He goes on a cruise uh, and has a lot of observations about how the cruise functions. And there's a really hilarious moment where he's sitting at a table and this, I think husband and wife are bickering about potatoes. Um, (laughs) But something you mentioned earlier about how the love boat was marketed and sort of like you're coming on this tour and and writing and speaking in second person Mm -hmm. to the audience. Um, he has a long passage about the brochure that he reads and how it's mo- how it's written in second person. So nice. your experience, your uh, it, like, so it gives the reader the sense like everything's being tailored for you, right? But it's not exactly. Also, a, a kind of auxiliary mis- made me think of this: <laughs> a 2012 Simpsons episode called <laughs> "A Totally Fun Thing Bart Would Never Do Again," in which Bart. <laughs> Bart has the sense of ennui and decides to go, like, convinces the family to pay for this cruise. Um, <laughs> so the title is taken from the, the yeah, Walls, clearly, uh, and it's actually of later day Simpsons. It's, it's actually really good. Uh, I have so not seen very, this one. Pretty emotional in terms of how Bart responds to, and what happens to Bart. Bart has this really amazing time on the on the cruise, but doesn't want it to end. So Bart stages an. Uh, international pandemic oh oh no he doesn't uh, he does (laughs) so he finds a dvd copy of a treat williams film i think it's treat williams who plays himself on the episode um (laughs) uh, and and anyway it's the the guest actor and so bart like convinces everybody and and eventually the the cruise ship falls into like chaos uh and like a um uh sort of a, a, a uh, apocalyptic you know people are like forming their own governments and like oh, roving yeah. <laughs> bands of, uh, of of bandits um and of course bart admits that he stayed he was responsible thing. for all yeah. that well i'm gonna go read that and watch that immediately yeah. reread and watch mm-hmm. um well mine is a little bit more tangential um i was sort of thinking back to that whole old glamour from the 50s of mm-hmm. the cruises um, and then also within my wheelhouse, um, as somebody who works on literature from the um, 1920s, um, and I'm recommending Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Uh, one, which my, is, one of my favorite novels, too. By it the is way. a great novel by yeah. Anita Luz. Um, mm-hmm. And the film by Harold Hawks in 1953, which, of course, stars Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell uh, as two showgirls, Lorelai Lee and her best friend Dorothy Shaw. Um, the movie loosely tracks the novel um, and it spends a lot of time on board a ship where Lorelai and Dorothy are going to Paris. Um, Lorelai is hoping to meet back up with her um, uh, sugar daddy uh, fiance there. On the way, there are a lot of onboard shenanigans. There is also an amazing scene going back to Paul's distraction with all of the beefcake. Um, <laughs> one of the best, <laughs> honest, the, one of the campiest, oh best. My, I totally forgot about this scene. Scenes yes. of all time. Yes. They, uh, they are on board with the U.S. Olympic team. Yep. And there is a workout session 
where Jane Russell is singing the song Ain't There Anywhere Here for Love. And it's all the guys doing the gymnastics in the skin colored shorts. And it is it is something to behold. It is it is our Linda Evans award <laughs> for working it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Very, very famous scene. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you can keep watching once they get to Paris to watch Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, which is also a classic number. But ain't there anyone here for love? It's worth the price of admission. Absolutely. For darn sure. So, yeah. All right. I think All that right. wraps it up for us for this episode. Uh, be sure to check us out on Twitter uh, at Annotated The and then at Instagram, annotate, The Annotated 80s. Uh, and next time we will we will be sticking with the television and we were going to be talking about cheers so uh, we are closing in on a year worth of pandemic and we miss going to bars so (laughs) (laughs) this is our this is our this is our vicarious participation uh, in that thing that we all used to do and we can't really remember how it worked but we can remember each other's names as it were so Indeed, we can. All right. All right. See you next time. Yeah.